Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, I just want to tell you about a new project I'm developing called MedPrep to Go. The idea here is to create a free online and audio USMLE question bank for both Step 1 and Step 2, with the overall goal of reducing the cost of medical education and giving you time back in your day, just like we're doing with this podcast. It's still early in the process, and we're adding a lot of questions and new episodes of the podcast regularly, but I'd love to have you go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you're interested in getting involved in developing questions for this question bank and getting some mentoring directly from me on how to develop questions, I'd love to have you involved. You can email me at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com or you can go over to medpreptogo.com and sign up through the website. So thanks so much for uh, listening and enjoy the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hello, I'm Patrick Beeman, founder and host of the Inside the Boards podcast. This is the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcast. First up, a question breakdown, thanks to Elsevier's Clinical Key. A 25-year-old Gravita Zero presents with a chief complaint of excess body hair noted over her abdomen, chin, and upper lip. Her last menstrual period was two months prior, and she reports a history of irregular menses. Upon physical examination, the patient is mildly overweight, has hirsutism, and mild acne. Her pelvic examination is unremarkable. Laboratory findings reveal normal dehydroepiandrosterone sulfate levels, that's DHES, normal testosterone, and normal androstenedione. She has an increased luteinizing hormone to follicle-stimulating hormone ratio. What is the most likely etiology for her symptoms? Is it A, adrenal neoplasm, B, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, C, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or D, sertoli Leydig cell tumor of the ovary? And the correct answer here is C, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. PCOS is the most common cause of androgen excess and hirsutism. The clinical presentation here with irregular menses, Evidence of a hyperandrogen state, which can be either on physical exam with hirsutism or acne, for instance, or elevations in androgens, which, although she doesn't have that, she does have another classic finding we see in PCOS, which is an increased LH to FSH ratio. Irregular menses, a sign of oligoovulation, you could also say ovulatory dysfunction or anovulation plus evidence of a hyperandrogen state are all you need to make the diagnosis of PCOS. The third criterion is polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound, but you don't need it to make the diagnosis. To look at some of the incorrect answer choices, A was an adrenal neoplasm, 
This one's incorrect because these tumors often produce a rapid increase in hirsutism and are associated with elevated DHEAS levels. But this patient had a normal DHEA sulfate. Choice B was congenital adrenal hyperplasia. This one's due to an enzymatic deficiency. In the most common form, as you probably know, it's 21-hydroxylase deficiency, which also results in an increase in DHEA sulfate. Choice D was a Sertoli-Leydig cell tumor of the ovary. These tumors cause a marked elevation in androgens, specifically testosterone, and there will be an ovarian mass, which can be palpated on pelvic examination or, you know, seen on an ultrasound. But we can rule this out here simply because the patient had a normal testosterone level. To break it down, polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, is diagnosed by meeting two of the three following criteria. One, evidence of oligoovulation or anovulation, i.e. irregular menses. Two, clinical or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism. And three, polycystic ovaries. If you have two out of three, the diagnosis is PCOS. And now, let's get back to USMLE Step 2 Secrets. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the gynecology chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. What is the most common cause of preventable infertility in the United States? Pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID. Question 2. What is the most likely cause of infertility in a normally menstruating woman under the age of 30? PID. Question 3. What is PID? How do you recognize it on the Step 2 exam? PID is typically due to an ascending sexually transmitted infection of the upper female genital tract that may involve the endometrial cavity, endometritis, fallopian tubes, salpingitis, ovaries, oophoritis, parametrial tissues and ligaments, parametritis, and or peritoneal cavity, peritonitis. Look for a female aged 13 to 35 years with the following symptoms. 1. Abdominal pain. 2. Adnexal tenderness. And 3. Cervical motion tenderness. All three criteria must technically be present. In addition, one or more of the following should be present. Elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate or C-reactive protein level leukocytosis, fever, or purulent cervical discharge. Question 4. How is PID treated? What are the common sequelae? Treat PID with more than one antibiotic to cover multiple organisms, especially Neisseria gonorrhea and Chlamydia trachomatis, the most common organisms. There are several different regimens recommended by the CDC, but the following are good choices. Ceftriaxone plus doxycycline for outpatients, cefoxidin or cefotetan plus doxycycline for inpatients to cover multiple organisms. Also consider E. coli, anaerobes, and with a history of intrauterine device, actinomyces israelii. Common sequelae include infertility due to scarring of the fallopian tubes and progression to tubo-ovarian abscess which is palpable on exam and may respond to antibiotics alone, but may rupture. Treat rupture with emergent laparotomy and excision of the affected tube or total abdominal hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy for bilateral disease. Question 5. Define endometriosis. 
What are the signs and symptoms? Endometriosis is defined as endometrial glands outside the uterus. Patients are usually nulliparous and over 30 with the following symptoms. Dysmenorrhea or painful menstruation. Dyspareunia or painful intercourse. Dyskesia or painful defecation and or perimenstrual spotting. The most common site for the ectopic endometrial glands is the ovaries. Look for tender anexa in an afebrile patient. Other sites include the broad uterosacral ligament and peritoneal surface. Nodularities on the broad ligament are classic findings on physical exam. The classic sequela is a retroverted uterus. Question 6. How is endometriosis diagnosed and treated? The gold standard of diagnosis is laparoscopy with visualization of the endometriosis. Treat first with birth control pills, if acceptable to the patient. Danazole and gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists such as luprolide are second-line agents. Surgery and cautery can be used to destroy the endometriomas, a procedure that often improves fertility. In an older patient, consider hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy for severe symptoms. Question 7. What is the most likely cause of infertility in a menstruating woman over the age of 30 without a history of PID? Endometriosis. Question 8. Cover the right-hand columns. Specify the findings and treatment for the following vaginal infections. So for candida species, findings, or cottage cheese, pseudohyphae on KOH preparation, history of diabetes, antibiotic treatment, or pregnancy. Treatment is a topical or oral antifungal. For trichomonas vaginalysis, findings are bugs that can be seen swimming under the microscope, pale green, frothy, watery discharge, and a strawberry surfix. Treatment is metronidazole. For Gardnerella vaginalis, Findings, malodorous discharge, fishy smell on KOH preparation, and clue cells. Treatment is metronidazole. Human papillomavirus. Findings are venereal warts and coilocytosis on pap smear. Treatments are many, including acid, cryotherapy, laser, or pedophilin. For herpes virus, findings are multiple shallow, painful ulcers with recurrence and resolution. Treatments or acyclovir, or val-acyclovir. For syphilis, stage 1, findings are painless chancre and spirochetes on dark field microscopy. Treatment is penicillin. For syphilis, stage 2, findings are condyloma lata, maculopapular rash on the palms, and positive serology. Treatment is penicillin. For chlamydia trachomatis, Findings, this is the most common STD. Dysuria, positive culture antibody tests. Treatments, doxycycline or azithromycin. For Neisseria gonorrhea, findings are mucopurulent cervicitis and a gram-negative bug on gram stain. Treatment, ceftriaxone. Molluscum, findings are characteristic appearance of the lesions and intracellular inclusions. Treatment, curette, cryotherapy, or electrocauterization and coagulation. For pediculosis, these are crabs. Look for itching. Lice can be seen on pubic hairs. Treatment, 
permethrin cream, or malathion. Question 9. True or false? With all of the infections listed in the previous table, you should seek out and treat the patient's sexual partners. False. Candida and Gardnerella species are not typically sexually transmitted infections. They are usually caused by disturbances in the normal vaginal flora. You should treat the patient's sexual partners and give counseling, such as condoms, for the other infections, which are sexually transmitted. Question 10. True or false? Patients with gonorrhea are usually treated for presumed chlamydial infection. True. A common current treatment strategy is to give both ceftriaxone for gonorrhea and doxycycline or azithromycin for chlamydia together to patients with gonorrhea. The reverse is not true. Do not automatically give gonorrhea treatment to patients with chlamydial infection. Question 11. Define adenomyosis. How does it classically present? What is the treatment? Adenomyosis is defined as endometrial glands within the uterine musculature. Patients are usually over 40 with dysmenorrhea and menorrhagia and have a large, boggy uterus on physical exam. Do dilation and curatage first to rule out endometrial cancer. Consider hysterectomy to relieve severe symptoms. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists also may relieve symptoms. Question 12. What are fibroids? How common are they? How often do they become malignant? Fibroids, also known as lyomyomas, are benign uterine tumors. They are the most common tumors in women and the most common indication for hysterectomy when they grow too large or cause symptoms. Up to 40% of women have fibroids by age 40. Malignant transformation is quite rare and is less than 1%. Question 13. Explain the relationship between uterine lyomyomas and hormones. How do lyomyomas present? What is the treatment? Lyomyomas of the uterus are estrogen-dependent. Therefore, you may see rapid growth during pregnancy or use of oral contraceptive pills and regression after menopause. Lyomyomas may cause infertility, pain, and menorrhagia or metarrhagia. Anemia due to lyomyoma is an indication for hysterectomy. Rare patients present with a polyp protruding through the cervix. Dilation and curatage are needed to rule out endometrial cancer in women who present after the age of 35. Treatment is usually surgical. Though the levonogestrel-releasing IUD is seeing more widespread use, myomectomy can sometimes maintain or even restore fertility. For those no longer desiring pregnancy, hysterectomy is a treatment option. Question 14. What is the first test to order in any woman of reproductive age with abnormal uterine bleeding? A pregnancy test. Question 15. Define dysfunctional uterine bleeding, or DUB. When is it physiologic? Dysfunctional uterine bleeding is defined as abnormal uterine bleeding not associated with a tumor, inflammation, or pregnancy. It is the most common cause of abnormal uterine bleeding and is a disease of exclusion. More than 70% of cases are associated with anovulatory cycles from unopposed estrogen. The age of the patient is important because after menarche and immediately before menopause, 
dysfunctional uterine bleeding is extremely common and in fact is considered physiologic. Most other women have polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, the most common non-physiologic cause of dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Question 16. Why is endometrial biopsy recommended in women over 35 with dysfunctional uterine bleeding? What other tests should be ordered in all women with dysfunctional uterine bleeding regardless of age? To rule out endometrial cancer, hemoglobin and hematocrit should be ordered on all women with DUB to make sure that the patient is not anemic from excessive blood loss. Question 17. What causes dysfunctional uterine bleeding other than PCOS? How is DUB treated? Causes of dysfunctional uterine bleeding include infections, endocrine disorders such as thyroid, adrenal, and pituitary or prolactinomas, coagulation defects, and estrogen-producing neoplasms. In the absence of treatable pathology, treat first with NSAIDs, which are first-line agents for DUB and dysmenorrhea. Oral contraceptive pills are also a first-line agent for menorrhagia and DUB if the patient does not desire pregnancy and menstrual cycles are irregular. Monotherapy with progesterone is used for severe bleeding. Question 18. Define PCOS. How do you recognize it? PCOS is an endocrine imbalance characterized by androgen excess as well as a ratio of luteinizing hormone, LH, to follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, greater than 2 to 1. Patients also frequently develop enlarged ovaries with multiple peripherally-oriented cysts, which can be seen on ultrasound. However, an ultrasound is not required to make a diagnosis of PCOS. On the Step 2 exam, watch for an overweight woman who has acne, hirsutism, amenorrhea, and or infertility. Question 19. What is the most likely cause for infertility in a woman under 30 with abnormal menstruation? PCOS. Question 20. How is PCOS treated? With what risks is it associated? Treat with oral contraceptive pills or cyclic progesterone. If the patient desires pregnancy, you can use clomiphene to induce ovulation. Chronic unopposed estrogen, that is, not enough progesterone, hence infrequent menses, increases the risk of endometrial cancer in affected patients. Spironolactone can be used to treat hirsutism associated with PCOS. Metformin is sometimes used to treat the insulin resistance associated with PCOS and to help restore ovulation. However, metformin is not FDA approved for this use and oral contraceptive pills or cyclic progesterone are the preferred agents for endometrial protection. Question 21. Is infertility usually a male or a female problem? Two-thirds of cases are due to a female problem, one-third to a male problem. Question 22. Assuming that the history and physical exam offer no clues, what is the next step in evaluating a couple with infertility? Semen analysis, which is cheap, easy, and non-invasive. Question 23. List the relevant characteristics of normal semen. Ejaculate volume greater than 1 milliliter. Sperm concentration greater than 20 million per milliliter. Initial forward motility 
greater than 50% of sperm, normal morphology in greater than 60% of sperm. Question 24. What is the next step after semen evaluation? Documentation of ovulation. The history may suggest an ovulatory problem. Irregular menstrual cycle, length, duration, or amount of flow, a lack of premenstrual syndrome symptoms, basal body temperature, luteal phase progesterone levels, and or endometrial biopsy can be done to check for ovulation. Question 25. What radi radiologic test is commonly used to examine the fallopian tubes and uterus? What points in the history may lead you to suspect a uterine or tube problem? A hysterosalpingogram is commonly used to examine the uterus and tubes. The history may suggest a tubal problem, PID, previous ectopic pregnancy, or a uterine problem, such as previous dilation and curatage that causes intrauterine synechiae, a history of fibroids, or symptoms of endometriosis. Question 26. What test is the last resort in the workup for infertility? Laparoscopy can be done as a last resort or with a history suggestive of endometriosis. Lysis of adhesions and destruction of endometriosis lesions often restore fertility. Question 27. Which two medications can be used to try to restore female fertility? In what situations are they effective? Medical therapy usually consists of clomiphene citrate to induce ovulation but this approach requires adequate production of estrogen. If the woman is hypoestrogenic, use human menopausal gonadotropin, which is a combination of FSH and LH. If medications fail, in vitro fertilization can be attempted. Question 28. What is the main risk associated with medical induction of ovulation? Multiple gestation pregnancies. Question 29. Distinguish between primary and secondary amenorrhea. A patient with primary amenorrhea has never menstruated or had a menstrual period, whereas a patient with secondary amenorrhea used to menstruate but has stopped. Question 30. Until proven otherwise, what is the cause of secondary amenorrhea in a previously menstruating woman of reproductive age? Pregnancy. Always order a human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, test to rule out pregnancy as the first step in your evaluation of secondary amenorrhea. Question 31. True or false? Excessive exercise can cause amenorrhea. True. It is not uncommon to find amenorrhea or hypomenorrhea in hard training athletes. It results from an exercise-induced depression of gonadotropin-releasing hormone. Question 32. What are other common causes of secondary amenorrhea? PCOS, anorexia, amenorrhea is required for a diagnosis of anorexia, endocrine disorders, headaches, galactorrhea, and visual field defects may indicate a pituitary tumor, antipsychotics, due to increased prolactin, and previous chemotherapy, which causes premature ovarian failure and menopause. Although not considered secondary amenorrhea, menopause should be kept in mind as a cause for cessation of menstruation. Question 33. 
After ruling out pregnancy, if the cause of secondary amenorrhea is not obvious from the history and physical exam, what is the next step in your evaluation? Administer progesterone to assess the patient's estrogen status. If vaginal bleeding develops within two weeks of administering progesterone, the patient has sufficient estrogen. In this case, check the LH level. If it is high, consider PCOS. If it's low or normal, check the levels of prolactin and TSH. The high TSH level in hypothyroidism causes high prolactin levels. If the prolactin is high with a normal TSH level, order an MRI scan of the brain to rule out pituitary prolactinoma. If the prolactin level is normal, look for low levels of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which may be induced by drugs, stress, or exercise. In these patients, clomiphene can be used to, in an attempt to facilitate pregnancy. Question 34. What if the patient fails to have vaginal bleeding after receiving progesterone? If the patient has no vaginal bleeding, estrogen levels are adequate. Check the FSH level next. If it's elevated, premature ovarian failure is a problem. Check for autoimmune disorders, karyotype abnormalities, and a history of chemotherapy. If the FSH level is low or normal, the problem may be a brain tumor, such as craniopharyngioma. Order an MRI of the brain. Clomiphene is ineffective in these patients. Question 35. True or false? Pregnancy can present as primary amenorrhea. True. Always assess the HCG level in the evaluation of any type of amenorrhea. Question 36. At what age can primary amenorrhea be diagnosed? What is the first step in evaluation? A diagnosis of primary amenorrhea is made when a girl has not menstruated by the age of 16. Patients also should be evaluated in the absence of secondary sexual characteristics by age 14 or in the absence of menstruation within two years of developing secondary sex characteristics, such as breast development and axillary and pubic hair. The first step is to rule out pregnancy. Question 37. In a patient older than 14 with no secondary sexual characteristics or development, what is the most likely cause of amenorrhea? The most likely cause in this setting is a congenital problem. In a phenotypically normal female with normal breast development but no axillary or pubic hair, think androgen insensitivity syndrome. In such patients, the uterus is absent. In the presence of normal breast development in a uterus, the first step is to assess the prolactin level to rule out pituitary adenoma. If the prolactin level is high, order an MRI. If it's normal, administer progesterone and follow the same procedure as in the evaluation of secondary amenorrhea. Question 38. When in doubt, what is the best way to evaluate any type of amenorrhea? First, order a pregnancy test. If it is negative, administer progesterone. Further testing depends on the results of the progesterone challenge, bleeding or no bleeding. A TSH level and or prolactin level should also be ordered, especially with symptoms of hypothyroidism or pituitary tumor. Question 39. When does menopause occur? What are the signs and symptoms? 
The average age of menopause is around 51 years. Patients have irregular cycles or amenorrhea, hot flashes and mood swings, and an elevated FSH level. Amenorrhea for one year signals the completion of menopause. Patients also may complain of dysuria, dyspareunia, incontinence, and or vaginal itching, burning, or soreness. Vaginal symptoms are often due to atrophic vaginitis. Look for the vaginal mucosa to be thin, dry, and atrophic, with increased parabasilar cells on cytology. Topical estrogen improves vaginal symptoms, but other symptoms require oral therapy. Question 40. What is the current state of hormone replacement therapy? Hormone replacement therapy is currently recommended short-term for the management of moderate to severe vasomotor flushing. Long-term use for the prevention of disease, such as osteoporosis or cardiovascular disease, is no longer recommended based on the results of the Women's Health Initiative and the HERS trial. Question 41. When a woman presents with nipple discharge, what historical points are important? A history of using oral contraceptive pills, hormone therapies, antipsychotic medications because of elevated prolactin, or symptoms suggestive of hypothyroidism, which can all cause nipple discharge. The color of the discharge and whether the discharge is unilateral or bilateral is also very important. For example, if nipple discharge is bilateral and non-bloody, it is not due to breast cancer, but it may be due to a prolactinoma so check prolactin level, or an endocrine disorder, so check a TSH level. Alternatively, when nipple discharge is unilateral and bloody, nipple discharge secondary to carcinoma generally contains hemoglobin, and or if it's associated with a mass, this should raise concern about possible breast cancer. Do a biopsy of any mass if present. Question 42. What are the most likely causes of a breast mass in a woman under the age of 35? Number one, fibrocystic disease, bilateral, multiple cystic lesions that are tender to the touch, especially premenstrually. This is the most common of all breast diseases. Generally, no workup is needed if other is needed other than routine follow-up. Oral contraceptive pills, progesterone, or danazole may help relieve symptoms. Number two, fibroadenoma, a painless, discrete, sharply circumscribed, unilateral, rubbery, mobile mass. This is the most common benign tumor of the female breast. Patients may be observed for one or more menstrual cycles in the absence of symptoms. Because tumors are estrogen-dependent, pregnancy and oral contraceptive pills may stimulate growth, whereas menopause causes regression. Excision is curative but not required except for cosmetic reasons. Number three, mastitis and abscess. Typically, in the first few months postpartum, lactating women may develop a painful, swollen, erythematous breast or breasts. The nipple may be cracked or fissured. The patient should be treated with analgesics such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen and instructed to continue breastfeeding with the affected breasts even though it is painful, and a breast pump may be used to empty the breast if needed. This is all to prevent further milk duct blockage and abscess formation. An anti-staphylococcal antibiotic such as dicloxacillin or cephalexin should be given for more than mild symptoms. 
If there is risk for MRSA, or if MRSA is cultured, use trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or clindamycin. If a fluctuant mass develops or there is no response to antibiotics within a few days, an abscess is likely present and must be drained. And finally, number four, fat necrosis. Patients have a history of trauma in the area of the mass. Question 43, true or false? Mammography should be done for any suspicious breast lesion in a woman under age 30. False. Mammography is usually not done in women under age 30 because breast tissue is often too dense to discern a mass. If you are suspicious of breast cancer, which is very rare in this age group, proceed to ultrasound imaging or directly to biopsy. Question 44. What are the likely causes of a breast mass in a woman over the age of 35? Number one, fibrocystic disease. As mentioned previously, but aspiration of cyst fluid and baseline mammography are recommended. If the cyst fluid is non-bloody and the mass resolves after aspiration, the patient needs only reassurance and follow-up with a baseline mammogram. If the fluid is bloody or the cyst recurs quickly, do a biopsy to rule out cancer. Fibroadenoma. Get a baseline mammogram. Observe briefly if the mass is small and seems benign clinically and the woman is premenstrual and has no risk factors for breast cancer. Otherwise, do a biopsy. Phyllodes tumors may masquerade as a fibroadenoma. Fat necrosis and mastitis or abscess are as mentioned previously. Breast cancer. On the step two exam, you may not get the classic presentation of nipple retraction and or peau d'orange in a nulliparous woman with a strong family history. In a woman 35 years or older, you will never be faulted for doing a biopsy of any mass. In the absence of a classic benign presentation, for example, trauma to the breast with fat necrosis or bilateral masses with premenstrual syndrome mastalgia, always consider a biopsy. Also get baseline mammography. Question 45. True or false? If a patient is postmenopausal or over age 50 and develops a new breast mass, you should assume cancer until proven otherwise. True. The risk of breast cancer begins to increase sharply and the incidence of benign disorders begins to decrease sharply. Most benign disorders are caused by reproductive hormones that women in this age group lack. Question 46. True or false? Mammography is best used as a tool to evaluate a palpable breast mass. False. Mammography is best used as a tool to detect non-palpable breast masses as a screening tool. A suspicious lesion found on mammography should be biopsied, even if it seems benign or is inapparent on physical exam. Additionally, a clinically suspicious mass should be biopsied unless imaging demonstrates unequivocally benign findings such as a cyst. Question 47. What causes pelvic relaxation or vaginal prolapse? What are the signs and symptoms? Pelvic relaxation is due to a weakening of pelvic supporting ligaments. Look for a history of several vaginal deliveries, feeling of heaviness or fullness in the pelvis, backache, worsening symptoms with standing, and resolution of symptoms with lying down. Question 48. What types of pelvic relaxation are seen clinically? How are they treated? 
cystocele. The bladder bulges into the upper anterior vaginal wall. Common symptoms include urinary urgency, frequency, and or incontinence. Rectocele. The rectum bulges into the lower posterior vaginal wall. Watch for difficulty with defecation. Enterocele. Loops of bowel bulge into the upper posterior vaginal wall. Urethrocele. The urethra bulges into the lower anterior vaginal wall. Common symptoms include urinary urgency, frequency, and or incontinence. Conservative treatment for all types of pelvic relaxation involves pelvic strengthening exercises and or a pessary, an artificial device to provide support. Surgery is used for refractory or severe cases or patient desire. Question 49. Other than abstinence, what are the most effective forms of birth control when used properly? The most effective forms of birth control in order of efficacy are sterilizations such as tubal ligation and or vasectomy, implants such as the etanogestrol implant, or an intrauterine device, injectable hormone depot preparations, then birth control pills or patch, or a hormonal vaginal ring. Question 50. Do intrauterine devices, or IUDs, increase the risk of ectopic pregnancy, or PID? An intrauterine device does not increase a woman's risk of having an ectopic pregnancy. However, if a woman who has an IUD is found to be pregnant, it is more likely to be an ectopic pregnancy than if she didn't have the IUD. However, an IUD does not increase the overall risk of ectopic pregnancy. IUDs do not increase the risk of PID. If a woman has an IUD in place and is diagnosed with PID, do not remove the IUD. Treat with antibiotics with the IUD in place. Question 51. What is the classic cause of ambiguous genitalia on the Step 2 exam? Adrenogenital syndrome, also known as congenital adrenal hyperplasia. 90% of cases are caused by 21-hydroxylase deficiency. Patients are female because affected males experience precocious sexual development. Patients with 21-hydroxylase deficiency have salt wasting, low sodium, hyperkalemia, hypotension, and elevated 17-hydroxyprogesterone. Treat with steroids and intravenous fluids immediately to prevent death. Question 52. What should you tell the parents of a child with ambiguous genitalia? Tell the parents the truth. You do not know the child's gender. No patient with ambiguous genitalia should be assigned a sex until the workup is complete. A karyotype must be done. Question 53. What is indicated by a bunch of grapes protruding from a pediatric vagina? Sarcoma botoroides a malignant tumor, which is a type of embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma. Question 54. Define precocious puberty. What causes it? How should it be treated? By definition, precocious puberty occurs in girls younger than 8 years old or boys younger than 9 years old. Premature or precocious puberty is usually idiopathic, but it may be caused by a hormone-secreting tumor, such as Leydig cell tumor, or central nervous system disorder, such as hamartoma or astrocytoma, both of which must be ruled out.
Treat the underlying cause. If the condition is idiopathic, treat with a gonadotropin-releasing hormone analog to prevent premature epiphyseal closure and arrest or reverse puberty until an appropriate age. Question 55. What causes vaginitis or discharge in prepubescent girls? Most cases are nonspecific or physiologic, but look for a vaginal foreign body, sexual abuse, especially if a sexually transmitted disease is present, or candidal infection. A candidal infection may be a presentation of diabetes, so check the serum glucose level and or the urine for glycosuria. Question 56. How do you recognize and treat an imperforate hymen? Imperforate hymen classically presents at menarche with hematocolpos, blood in the vagina, that cannot escape. Thus, the hymen bulges outward. Treatment is surgical opening of the hymen. Question 57. What is the usual cause of vaginal bleeding in neonates? How is it treated? Vaginal bleeding in neonates is usually physiologic and due to maternal estrogen withdrawal. No treatment is needed because the bleeding resolves on its own. Question 58. Which women are candidates for hormone replacement therapy? Hormone replacement therapy, that is, estrogen with or without progesterone, is now controversial and probably best used only as a means of menopause-related symptom relief. Observation during therapy is necessary because estrogen and progesterone are not harmless. Every woman should make the decision on her own after weighing the risks and benefits. See the following questions, 60 through 64, for more details. Question 59. What are the known benefits of estrogen therapy? Decreased osteoporosis and decreased fractures. Reduced hot flashes and genitourinary symptoms of menopause, such as dryness, urgency, atrophy-induced incontinence, and frequency, and decreased risk of colorectal cancer, according to the Women's Health Initiative, when combined estrogen and progesterone therapy is used. Question 60. What are the known risks of estrogen therapy? Increased risk of endometrial cancer, which is eliminated by co-administration of progesterone a small increase in the risk of coronary heart disease with combined estrogen and progesterone therapy, though the risk is not increased in women who are less than 10 years postmenopausal or 50 to 59 years of age, increased risk of venous thromboembolism, increased risk of breast cancer, according to the Women's Health Initiative, when combined estrogen and progesterone therapy is used. There was a slight decreased risk of breast cancer with estrogen only, though this decrease was not statistically significant. Increased risk of stroke, again according to the Women's Health Initiative, with either estrogen only or combined estrogen and progesterone therapy, and increased risk of gallbladder disease. Question 61. What are the most common side effects of estrogen therapy? Endometrial bleeding, bloating, breast tenderness, headaches, and nausea. Question 62. What are the absolute contraindications to estrogen therapy? Unexplained vaginal bleeding, active liver disease, history of thromboembolism, coronary artery disease, history of endometrial or breast cancer, and pregnancy. Question 63. What are the relative contraindications to estrogen therapy? Seizure disorder, 
hypertension, uterine lyomyomas, familial hyperlipidemia, migraine headache with aura, thrombophlebitis, endometriosis, and gallbladder disease. Question 64. What test is often done before starting estrogen therapy? Women classically get an endometrial biopsy, ultrasound, or dilation and curatage at the onset of treatment to rule out endometrial hyperplasia and or cancer and an evaluation of any unexplained bleeding, even while on therapy, unless they've had a normal evaluation within the past six months. Question 65. True or false? Women without a uterus do not need to take progesterone with estrogen. True. The main reason for giving progesterone with hormone replacement therapy is to eliminate the increased risk of endometrial cancer that accompanies unopposed estrogen therapy. If a woman has no uterus, then she has no need for progesterone. Question 66. What are the absolute contraindication to combined oral contraceptive pills? Acute DVT or PE? History of DVT or PE? not on anticoagulant therapy, known thrombogenic mutations, venous thromboembolism, current or past, this includes deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism, history of stroke, ischemic heart disease, moderately or severely impaired cardiac function, vascular disease, complicated valvular heart disease, diabetes with complications, this can be a relative contraindication if the complications are not severe. Current breast cancer, pregnancy, decompensated cirrhosis, liver tumors such as hepatocellular adenoma or hepatoma, migraine with aura at any age or migraine without aura an age greater than or equal to 35 years, major surgery with prolonged immobilization, age greater than 35 years and smoking 15 or more cigarettes per day, hypertension, defined as a blood pressure greater than 160 over 100 millimeters of mercury or with concomitant vascular disease, and complicated solid organ transplantation. Question 67. What are the relative contraindications to combined oral contraceptive pills? Postpartum status fewer than 21 days breastfeeding fewer than one month postpartum, undiagnosed vaginal or uterine bleeding, age greater than 35 years and smoking more than 15 cigarettes per day, history of breast cancer but no recurrence in the past five years, history of DVT or PE with lower risk for recurrence, peripartum cardiomyopathy greater than or equal to six months, history of breast cancer with no evidence of current disease for five years, Interacting drugs, such as certain anticonvulsants, rifampin, ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors. Gallbladder disease, unless it's asymptomatic or there's a history of cholecystectomy. Migraine without aura, an age greater than or equal to 35 years. Hypertension, which is well-controlled, or blood pressure, systolic 140 to 159 and diastolic 90 to 99 millimeters of mercury, multiple risk factors for arterial cardiovascular disease, or acute viral hepatitis. Question 68. What is the relationship between oral contraceptive pills and hypertension? 
Oral contraceptive pills are one of the most common causes of secondary hypertension. Any patient taking birth control pills who is noted to have an increased blood pressure should discontinue the pills and have her blood pressure rechecked at a later date. Question 69. What do you need to know about oral contraceptive pills and surgery? Because the risks of thromboembolism, oral contraceptive pills should be stopped one month before elective surgery and not started again until one month after surgery. Question 70. What are the side effects of oral contraceptive pills? The side effects include glucose intolerance, so check for diabetes mellitus annually in women at high risk, depression, edema, weight gain, cholelithiasis, benign liver adenomas, melasma, nausea, vomiting, headache, hypertension, and drug interactions. Drugs such as rifampin and antiepileptics may induce metabolism of oral contraceptive pills and reduce their effectiveness. Question 71. What is the relationship between oral contraceptive pills and breast and cervical cancer? Oral contraceptive pills have little, if any, effect on the risk of developing breast cancer. Cervical neoplasia may be increased in users of birth control pills. Question 72. What is the relationship between oral contraceptive pills and ovarian and endometrial cancer? Oral contraceptive pills have been shown to reduce the incidence of ovarian cancer by 50%. They also reduce the incidence of endometrial cancer. Question 73. What are the other beneficial effects of oral contraceptive pills? They decrease the incidence of menorrhagia, dysmenorrhea, benign breast disease, functional ovarian cysts, and they're actually often prescribed for the previous four effects. They also decrease premenstrual tension, iron deficiency anemia, ectopic pregnancy, and salpingitis. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.